Today we are continuing a series called Women of the Bible. And uh, to be honest with you, through about Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, I was going to cover either uh, Mary Magdalene, which I think is an incredible story. I thought maybe I'll cover Mary, the mother of Jesus. We haven't really touched on her. And uh, sometimes we don't touch enough on the Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus and the incredible uh, role that she played uh, in the incarnation of Jesus. But uh, ultimately, uh, just through conversations and just a lot of things, I think, going on in our own church, uh, I wanted to just kind of be an encouragement uh, to some moms that seem to be uh, doing some of their faith experience alone. And uh, maybe uh, you say, I'm doing it alone because, um, you know, my husband just doesn't seem to be on board with faith. Maybe uh, it was because uh, some way you married an unbeliever and, and though you, you live together, he doesn't understand your faith and you don't understand why he won't come to faith. Or uh, maybe you're here and just through different experiences, et cetera, you uh, just are, uh, you're single, but you're maybe raising a kid uh, by yourself, or maybe you feel like you're alone, etc. The beautiful thing about this text as we dive in today, as we look at this incredible lady of the faith, uh, is that it's really an encouragement for all of us. And the reason why is because there's some things that she seems to do that really, I think, are, are kind of general across the board or applicable for every single person here in the way that she instructs her, her child and, and some of the steps that she takes. And so I just encourage you that you would really listen in, but uh, in the meantime, meantime uh, that you would just know that God has a really incredible word for some of you in here that uh, you're raising a, a teenager and you're like, Lord, either call me home or ca- call him, you know? <laughs> And uh, so let me just encourage you that God has a purpose and a plan for you. And um, I just, I want, I want you to just to, to listen in. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to, to, to three different places. Uh, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. You can mark that spot. Uh, that's where we're going to begin. But also, uh, you can turn to uh, a couple of pages over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then also Acts chapter 16. And the reason that we're going to look at all these different places so that you see the entire story unfold and that you don't just get one verse and then you're like, man, that, that's all there is. Because the lady that we're going to cover today is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, and her name is Eunice. And uh, Eunice is the mother of this man named Timothy, which seems to be uh, an incredible man of the faith. But he doesn't become a, a man of faith simply on his own, but it seems that he becomes a man of faith because of really discerning mom and grandmother. And so in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1, verse 5, let's look at it together. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it for you up on the screen. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get you one uh, today before you leave. And so just stop by our resource counter out in our lobby, and we'd love to help you in some way. But in verse 5, it says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Now, this is Paul writing to a guy named Timothy, and he is writing to him because at this point in the journey, he is uh, venturing out uh, in some ways uh, on his own and going to be a, a pastor and going to be a, a colleague of his, but he is recounting to him some of the things that he remembered about Timothy and their experience and their faith journey. But it just says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. That sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first, look, in your grandmother and in your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure that it dwells in you as well. Now, you can read that and you go, hey, it, it, it was a faith that I saw in your grandmother, Lois, and I saw it in your mother, and, I, and I'm sure that it probably is going to dwell in you as well. 
That's not what it's saying. It's saying, and I am confident of what I've seen. I am sure. I am confident. I am, I am more than sure that it deals and dwells in you. So he goes, Timothy, I have seen the marks of your life. I have seen the decisions you've made. I've seen how you lived out the faith. I saw it in your grandmother Lois. I saw it in your mother Eunice. And now I am confident that I see it in you as well. And so you see this incredible thing. Well, interesting enough is, is that the sincerity of faith is what is so important. And so if you're just kind of taking notes, you're wondering, well, how in the world do I raise a godly kid in the midst of difficult times? Number one is you have to have a sincere faith. Now, sincere here literally means um, in the Greek to, to uh, be proven or to be sure. It's to, in a sense, to be the real deal. It's the mark of the real deal. It's not hypocritical. It's the real deal. Uh, for instance, here at Stone Point, we have shirts all the time that say, no perfect people allowed. And so oftentimes that's the mark of our church. And people go, hey, I love that church because it doesn't matter how perfect I am, I can go. And it, is, it doesn't matter who I am, I can go. And that is true. And that's the mark of our church. It doesn't matter where you've been, how much sin you've been a part of, where you came from, what your background was, what your faith experience was. We encourage you to come here. And the reason why is because we know that if you meet the God of the Bible, that he'll, he'll ultimately change your life. He'll He'll, he'll call you out of darkness into the wonderful light of Jesus. But listen, that same shirt that you and I wear that says no perfect people allowed is not a means for us to continue in a hypocrisy. It, it doesn't mean, hey, I'm going to wear the shirt and I get to go there because they don't care what I do. That's not what it means. It's not, it's not Romans 6.1 that we continue to sin that grace may increase. By no means is what Paul says. And so we don't continue to, to go to church and live a hypocritical type of faith. Matter of fact, that's what the sincere word means. If you look in Latin, we get our English transliterated word from two Latin words, which is sine, which is without, and sera, which is wax. Now, folklore would say that the reason that those Latin words combine like that, without wax, is because of what would happen in Hellenistic days. In the Hellenistic days, you would have uh, someone make pottery. And as they made pottery, uh, they would obviously craft it and hone it and shape it. And then you would have uh, either a cup or a pitcher or a bowl or whatever it was, and they would, they would put it into the kiln, they would fire it, and then after that, they would paint it, they would put it back in, they would fire it, and you would have this incredible piece of pottery. And if they were really good at what they did, if they were very crafty and they, uh, they had jars of clay that were spectacular and splendor, uh, then what they would do is they would sell that piece and people would look at it and go, wow, that's really sincere. It's without wax. But if they weren't good at their craft or maybe they just were very fast in their approach, they didn't take the time that it takes to skillfully craft the piece, they put it in the kiln, they fire it and it comes out and it has cracks. And what they would do is before they painted it, they would take uh, paraffin wax and they would fill in the cracks and then, then they would shape it. And then guess what? They would paint over it and they would put it right back in the kiln. They would fire it for that final time and they would go and they would sell it. But as you're walking in the marketplace, let me ask you a question. If you're going to pay a price for a piece, what do you want? You want the sincere piece. You want the real deal. You don't want a phony. And that's what the word literally means is that, look, Timothy, when I see your faith, I see the faith of your mother Eunice and your grandmother Lois, and I see your faith, which is sincere, it's without wax. And so oftentimes what people would say as they were walking down the streets is that if they wanted to take a piece of pottery and figure out if it was sincere or the real deal, they could hold it up to the light. And if there were no cracks, then guess what? It was the real deal, right? So I think it's true for you. If you want to see a Christian hold them up to the fire, 
and you'll see whether or not they're the real deal, right? Because oftentimes as Christians, what we do is we don't live sincere lives. It seems to be that we live phony lives. Yes, don't get me wrong. When we pull up into the parking lot, we file our little ducklings out and their nice clothes. But right before then, we gave them a stern warning, right? Listen to me. You're going to go in here. And you're going to act this way. And our, our chief goal is to raise good moral kids, right? And so uh, that, that's oftentimes what happens, but that's phony. Phony is not we clean up our act in order to present ourselves as something here and we live something totally different, which I think is the dilemma in Christian households across America, which is one of the crazy things is, is that we hope that our children get a faith that they don't see in us. And that's not consistent. They have to get a faith that they see in us. And they only get the faith that they see in us if we are sincere or we're not phonies, that we're not hypocrites, that we're the real deal. Now you say, well, how, how do I become the real deal? Well, I'm going to get to that in a few minutes because this woman was the real deal. This woman named Eunice was the real deal. Her mother, Lois, was the real deal. Apparently, they raised a son that's the real deal. But here's the deal. Did they raise a son and they had a godly father? No. Listen, Eunice was not without her challenges. Matter of fact, if you look in Acts chapter 16, verse 1 through 3, you're going to see the challenges that this lady Eunice had. In verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3, actually, let's do Acts 16, verse 1 through 3. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. Now, interesting enough is that you're going to see the challenges that this woman Eunice has. But let me give you a little context. In Acts chapter 13, all the way through 14, Paul has a missionary journey to Lystra and to Derby and to several different other places like Iconium. And, and he, on that first missionary journey, is going to be run out of town. He's going to be chased uh, and persecuted. But interesting enough, while he was there, there were several people that came to faith in Jesus. Now, this woman, Eunice, seems to be a Jewish woman. So she was Jewish by nature, but a Jewish woman. And she, she uh, obviously had some challenges. What were the challenges? We'll look here. As Paul came to Derby and Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, but the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but Timothy's father was a Greek. Now, Timothy, verse two, was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and take him and circumcise him because the Jews were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. So you look at the faith of a Lois and this Eunice, this grandmother and a mother who are somehow finding a way to implement their faith to a son. But meanwhile, they seem to be doing it alone while she is married to a Greek man. Now, a Greek man means this. It means that he was not a Jewish man and was not a believer in Christ or the things of Messianic teaching. He was not a, a Jewish follower. Matter of fact, he was not only a Greek, but look what he did with his son. Paul says, I would like Timothy to accompany me on my journey, meaning another missionary journey. But before we do so, he needs to be circumcised. Why? Because circumcision was a sign on the eighth day that a father would do, do to their, uh, their son to exhibit to the, the nation that he wasn't a sincere Jew, that externally he was a Jew. But somehow Eunice, this woman, says, you know what? It doesn't matter if he is circumcised because the father can have your way. Like if you don't want to circumcise him, that's fine. I'll give you that one, but I'm going to win over his heart. 
And God has always been about the business of winning over hearts. If you remember Jesse and his sons, he finally settled on that eighth one. When Samuel says, hey, I'm looking for a son, guess what? It settled on David, this this guy that didn't look like his brothers, but God says, I'm not worried about the outward appearance. I'm not worried about the external. What does God look at? The heart. And so she says, you know what? I'm going to win my son over through the faith, even though she seems to have a non-believing husband a husband that is not sincere in his faith. Now, you may wonder, well, how in the world did she get there? Well, if you really study uh, the original language, you'll notice that when she was a freshman in college, she decided that she was going to betray her parents and do her own thing. That didn't really say that, okay? So you're like, really, really? No, but the, the goal, is, the idea is this, is that some point in her faith, you realize that as a Jewish woman, there were several things that she would have been taught. Number one, she would have been taught that it pleased God most and was an abiding thing in God's law to marry another Jewish man. It's the same principle that we see in the New Testament that you and I as believers in Christ should not become unequally yoked. Why? Because there's challenges there. It's not that God can't use those challenges, and it's not that you're so disobedient that God can't use you. That's not the premise at all. We just know it's going to be more difficult. That's what the Scripture is clearly giving you the idea. But she seemed to have married a man, and at some point, she must have gone AWOL in her faith. Now, that's obviously speculation. You don't know, but the bottom line is we know that according to Jewish law, she would not have married a Greek man and been obedient to her parents and the Jewish law. And so for whatever reason, she married a man uh, built in Hellenistic culture and the Greek ideals. And this man was not for circumcising his son. Why? Because he goes, listen, you, you can take him to the synagogue all day long, but we're not becoming Jews. And it's almost the same that you maybe have heard all, all your life if you've been married to a man who's an unbeliever. Listen, this is the way I was when we got married. If you want to take our kids to church, by all means, you do that. That's a, not a problem. But don't be bringing that into our house. And so somehow this woman begins to live a faithful life. And, and you may wonder, well, how, how did that happen even though she was a part of a of a marriage that was Greek. Well, I think you see it happen because of a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 12, it talks about husbands living faithful before unbelieving wives. It talks about in 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians 7 about a woman living faithfully in the midst of an unbelieving husband. And you may wonder, well, how in the world do you do that? How, how do you honor God in the midst of of a woman who seems to love God with all of her heart, with all of her mind, with all of her soul, and all of her strength, and the husband says, I don't want any part of it. Well, I think the answer is briefly found in 1 Corinthians 7, 13 and 14, but it's also found in 1 Peter 3. And so I'm not going to put it for you up on the screen, but I want to read it to you because I think it's that good uh, in terms of what it would look like for a woman to live out her faith in the midst of some challenges in the home. And so here it is. Verse 1 of 1 Peter 3, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives. Nagging wives don't typically get very far with unbelieving husbands. But where they do begin to gain traction is through a faithful and respectful life. Verse 2, it says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, it seems that that begins to win them over to some degree. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. 
But, verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God's, in God's sight is very precious. So the idea is this, is, hey, the goal of winning someone over is not by external beauty, by the braiding of the hair. It's never about the external appearance. It's always about a pure, respectful life. Matter of fact, if you're a single woman here and you're you're kind of looking for someone. Maybe you're a single mother and you have a child and you're dating and you're kind of pursuing that man. Listen, what you should be doing is not worrying about the external beauty that you possess and how you somehow uh, look the part on eHarmony. What you should do is find a faithful man and you should be respectful and gentle and then save yourself a lot of challenges in the future by getting a man who seems to have the same type of faith background as you, who desires the same thing for your family, and then begin to move forward in holiness and in pure conduct and respect towards each other. That's what it looks like, and that's clearly what this woman, even though she had a non-believing husband, wanted to do. And I think that's a challenge. I, I can't speak to that challenge beyond what the Scriptures say because I know that there's no one when you initially get married that says, you know what, I want to get into the challenges of figuring out what faith experience is going to win. That's not what you got into and hoping for. But when you are in it, the question is, is how do you be encouraged? Here's the encouragement, is that you can still train up children in the Lord and the instructions of his ways, even if your husband is not present or he's not on board. Did you hear what I just said? you can still make a radical difference in the lives of your kids. And the question is, is where does it begin? Number one, it begins with a sincere faith. If you are one way every other time, and then you're still dragging your kids to church, hoping that somehow they'll see a different God, they're not going to. They're going to see the God of the Bible through the lens in which you live from every other day in the week rather than this one. And so you've got to be faithful and pure and sincere. And listen, even if you are faithful, pure, and sincere, let me say this, does not mean that your teenager is going to live by that. But that's your best chance. Your best chance is when you live out the faith in a faithful way, even in spite of difficult circumstances. But then turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So we know that this, this woman, Eunice, is a Jewish believer, probably converted on Paul's first missionary journey, then we also know that she was married to a Greek man who was not supportive of her faith or of her son's faith, yet he seemed to allow her to have a certain degree of influence in the home, and she says, I'm going to make it count. And here's what seems to be the prescription or what she did to influence her son, and it's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and Paul notes it. Why? Because Paul knows Timothy, has been around Timothy, but he also knows where he learned of his faith from. And interesting enough, though Paul has a great deal of influence in his life, particularly may have even been a part of his salvation experience, there was a foundation that was first laid by these two incredible women. And the question is, is why? Well, here's why. Because Eunice, it was her destiny from the very beginning. Her name, Eunice, literally means you, which is good, and Nike, which literally means conquest or victory. Her name means good conquest, good victory. I'm going after more. 
So she was one woman who says, I'm going to make my life count. She was of good conquest. And here's how she made it count. 2 Timothy chapter 3, this here is for every parent in this room, regardless of what your marriage looks like or regardless of where you are. Every parent should do these things because apparently these things work in bringing up a faithful son or daughter, in this case, a son. Verse 14, but as for you, but as for you, continue in what you've learned. Now, interesting enough, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first uh, 13 verses, it's talking about what it looks like to not live in the faith. It, it says, hey, in the last days, you're going to have evil, you're going to have murders, you're going to have slanders, you're going to have mockers, you're going to have people who revile and uh, they're contentious and on and on and on and on and on and on. So he says, Timothy, just know that as the days go on, things are going to get worse. But, verse 14, as for you, as for you, regardless of what's happening in the culture, regardless of what the influences around you, would you please continue in what you've learned? Do you see that? Continue in what you've learned. And so if, if mom is sincere, it's not that she is just sincere, but it also sees that she has what? Given some sort of God-given instruction to her son. And she seemed to do it early and often. Why do I say that? Well, continue on. Continue in what you've learned and you firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Then verse 15, and how from childhood you've been acquainted. Do you see that? From childhood. Timothy, the very things that you have learned, you learned often, even from what? Childhood. And so if you want to make a huge impact in your family's faith, and particularly in the area of your children and in their adolescence, here's how it happens. One, you're sincere. Number two, you teach them and instruct them early and often. Early and often. You and I ought to be instructing our children early and often. Matter of fact, as a Jewish woman, she would have known Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a key passage for all of those in Israel about how you instruct your children. You instruct them when they sit and when they rise, when they come, when they go. You, hey, before bed, when they get up, after bed, all these different things. You're going to instruct them. You're going to write on the doorpost of your house. You're going to write on the tablet of your hearts. All of these things are things that parents ought to be doing. And so a sincere faith is not just saying, you know what, I'm going to be respectable and pure in my house, but it's also meaning that you demonstrate your faith, not just by experience, but also through word and deed. And so you give them the word and you begin to teach them. What are you teaching them? Well, look, it says you teach them early and often from childhood about what? The sacred writings. The sacred writings. Now, why I think this is so marvelous is because of the effort it must have taken this Jewish woman to do that. See, in this culture, this Jewish woman, Eunice, of good conquest, she most likely did not read. The chances of her having a manuscript of the Torah 
which would have been the first five books of the Bible, the chances of her getting her hands on some of the written words of the prophet or some of the early circulation of books in the church are slim to none. Most of the manuscripts would have went to men, particularly leaders within either the early church or in the Jewish community. And they would have had a manuscript copy of things that Moses would have wrote. They would have probably had a copy of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and some of the things that Isaiah wrote and some of the things that other prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah wrote. But the chances this woman having that in her house, sitting on her mantle, is slim to none. So the question is, is how did she acquire the information? Most likely, she would have acquired it by going and sitting under some of the men's teaching at a synagogue. Or she would have been able to get her eyes on a copy somehow, maybe as they floated from place to place and home to home. But the chances of it sitting in her living room probably are not, are not realistic. And so what did she do? She committed all the word that she could to memory. And she began to commit it and commit it and commit it and commit it so that she could instruct that to her son. That's how faithful she was to being diligent about instructing to the sacred writings. And the question is, is why the sacred writings? Well, this idea of sacred writings, in case you haven't caught it, is simply the word. Though it's not mentioned in sacred writings, but once in the Bible here, it literally means to instruct them in the decrees and the commands of the Lord. It's the picture of Psalm 1. It's the picture of other examples in the text, like a Deuteronomy chapter 6. But it's saying, instruct them in the word. Raise them up. Share it with them. And that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges that's happening right now in American homes. Interesting enough, a woman like Eunice probably didn't have a manuscript copy but she worked so diligently, so faithfully, she memorized so she could impart it. And you and I, well, we got one when we were a kid. We got one when we graduated high school. We got one little small New Testament when, when we grew up in the early church, like in, in the church early on, they gave you a little blue Bible that somewhere floating around that your mom still has somewhere. You got your grandmother's Bible. You got another Bible last year when you started a new reading plan. And you have six of them in your home, maybe eight, maybe 10 copies. And there's not a single one of them that we are imparting to our kids. There's not a single one of them that we're faithful to gather them around and say, you know what, let's study the word. Let me teach you what the word says. And the reason why is because we don't realize what the sacred writings do. We don't understand the power and the truth that live in the word. And so you and I, if you're going to be great parents, you're not merely to live a sincere life. You're not merely to teach them early and often, but you're to instruct them the power of the word. You are to tell them what this word does. And listen, this word is the only reason that we gather today. Why? Because it reminds us of the great truth of what happened on the cross. It reminds us about who Jesus is and about who we are, that we fall short of the glory of God, that we're sinful and vile and wretched. And in our hearts, there's nothing good, Jeremiah 17, 9, about us. But because of Jesus and his forgiveness, he gives us new, new life. He, he wins us over. He gives us forgiveness of sin, remission of that sin. And ultimately, he calls us to reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. That we would reconcile others because of what God has done in our lives. And that's what the scriptures are. It reminds us of that. It reminds us that in difficult times where we're raising kids alone, that you can do it. And the church is here to help. It reminds you that in the midst of death and mourning and hard times that there is hope. Why? Because there's more to come. 
It reminds you that we simply gather to encourage one another, or Hebrews 10, to spur each other on towards love and good deeds as we see the day of Christ approaching. We know this isn't it, but sometimes we need a reminder that this isn't it. And that's what we do, and that's why we teach our kids. Why? Because it's everything we knew, need. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, just listen to this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power is not merely found alone in the Holy Spirit, but also in the word of God. See, listen, if you want God to work in your life, there's three things that must be present all the time. God's word, God's spirit through prayer, the Holy Spirit working in your life, and his people. You cannot adequately be the church without any of those three. If you say, I can gather at my home, then you leave out God's people. If you say, I can gather at God's home and just be in prayer, then you live out God's word. If you leave uh, out prayer, then you have merely God's word and you're abiding in your own uh, flesh with people, but you're missing God's spirit. Those are all adequate in us living a life of godliness, but the word gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to the glory of God by excellence, by which he has granted us the precious and very great promises so that... Through them, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. It, it helps us to run from our flesh. Look at Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the heart, the soul, the spirit, joints of the marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what the word of God does. Listen, the greatest thing about me being able to preach is that I don't have to be a scholar to open up. And God doesn't need a scholar to impart his word. God does it in and of himself by his power and by his divine nature. Anything else you get is bonus. It's like the gravy on a chicken fried steak. And so if that's what you get, great. But understand that the meat and potatoes comes from God and his word alone. And so here's the deal. He goes, I can, I can take an, a corrupt man and I can, I can clean him up and make him new. And see, you're a woman in here and you're like, man, I just can't get my husband to come on. Listen, live a pure, respectful, wholesome life, love him, encourage him, and then depend on God's word to convict him because he can take a hard man and give him a soft heart. It's Ezekiel 36. He can give a man that seems to have a heart of stone a heart of flesh. He can give us a new spirit. God does that, not us. And so how do we allow our sons, our daughters, our husbands, our, our friends, etc., to see this? We live faithful, sincere lives. We constantly live in the word with his people, abiding in the spirit. Then get this, we instruct people when they come and when they go, Ultimately, we don't instruct them with our own wisdom or intellect, but we give them the word of God. And then we trust the word of God that he'll do something that we can't, Ephesians 3.20, immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And that's all we've got. Look at, look at 2 Timothy 3. You, you saw this faith that seems to be persistent in this man named Timothy, the teaching, all of the things that, that, that he's learned from childhood from his mother and grandmother. But look at this. All scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Listen, if you want your kids to be equipped for every good work, you got one tool in the tool bag. It's the word of God. All the rules in the world do not make for godly kids. 
all the rules in the world may make for a moral kid, and it may, it may help you on aisle 17 in the frozen section in Walmart. Because that's what you hope for, right? If you throw down in Walmart with me, boy, and all you want to do is take your little tiny tots in there, you just want to get a few groceries, a loaf of bread, and get home, and you're hoping that there's not a war that gets thrown down, right? And you'll use any means possible. Listen, if you'll be really good, I'll let you roll through aisle 39 of the toy section as long as you don't ask to buy anything. And then it all goes wrong, doesn't it? Our hope is if we can somehow raise good moral kids and be a little bit unscathed that we've done our job. And listen, that's not your job. Our goal is not to raise good moral kids, but great godly ones. And you don't raise godly kids by accident. You raise godly kid through incredible intentions and choices. And you impart to them the instruction of the word early and often, reliable living. You are not one thing here and one thing there. You are consistent and they know that about you. But then at some point, you've given them all the instruction and all the sincere living that you could possibly do and then you trust that God's going to do something in their spirit and in their life to turn their heart towards him. And as he does, they have to have their own faith. Do you understand? They have to own it themselves. And at some point, you'll notice that Timothy owns it himself. And here's why. If you'll look back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, I kind of skipped over it a little bit. Verse 14, but it's for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. Timothy came to a firm belief that was his own. Do you understand? And if you look and you go, man, I've been trying to pride my kids. I've been trying to encourage them. I've been trying to help them. Listen, that's great. And you should continue to do that. But at some point in your life, there was a decision that you made to own your faith. And you might have been 34. You might have been 43. You might have been 27. You might have been God's grace in this life, and it happened at 13. And it saved you a world full of challenges. But the only reason that you and I become faithful and diligent in the word, surrounding ourselves with God's people, abiding in his spirit, is because you and I made a cognizant choice at some point to allow the spirit's work in our life to indwell us, to give us hope, and to live in it. And you can give all the rules and all the foundation you want, but if you don't allow your kids eventually to own their faith, then it'll never stick. And the way you allow them to own it is you live it, you teach it early and often. You show them the power of God's word. You show them what God can do and what only God can do. You tell him about the marvelous stories about what God has done. Save them from as many heartaches as you can because children need to be children. But at some point, you need to realize that your children need to hear the story of what God did when you couldn't pay the bill and God's people showed up and was provision and God used that for... Sometimes you you need to show them and tell them what God has done. That's what the Jewish people did. Do you know what the Jewish... Listen to me. Son, there was a time where we were trapped and in Egypt for 400 years, and our people were being brutally hurt 
and used. And her people just cried out to God. And for years, like a hundred years, we cried out. And it seemed like God was absent and he wasn't there. But our people just kept crawling out, calling out. And you won't believe what God did. Man, you should have, you should have heard about it. I wish I could have been there, man, when he, he took the Nile River and he turned it into blood. Oh, man, and what do you think it would have been like if, if we would have been there when that Red Sea was parted and God brought all the people of Israel out and he saved them? Hey, Dad, what's that pillar of stones over there? Well, that's when we crossed the Jordan River. And when we crossed, they, they took river out of, uh, river rock out of the water. They put it out on the dry land. They took some stones out of the dry land. They put it in the river. And that was, the, that was God showing us that he had delivered us again and that he was going to move us forward in our faith. And so that's what that pillar is. Remember that. Don't forget that. That was a God thing there. There are some moments that you need to remind your children of, of a God moment. Don't forget that, son. Don't forget that, little girl. That was God. Wasn't us. Matter of fact, that was, we were in disobedience and God still delivered. Remind them of that and then live in the faith that you firmly believed. I pray that today is an encouragement to you. Why? Because you and I can raise godly kids. Amen? Some of you are like, I don't know, man, I don't know. No, no, we can, and we need to. And the great thing is this, is that you can do it even if it's not the way you hoped it would be. Maybe it's not ideal. Maybe it's not what you dreamed of. Maybe your marriage is really difficult. Maybe your husband's an unbeliever. Maybe you're, maybe you're not even married anymore. Maybe you don't have a husband and maybe you're raising a son or a daughter on your own. Listen, there is hope. I know it's tiring. I know it's grueling. Listen, don't give up. Don't give up. Run the race. Fight the good fight. Press on until you win the prize. Because one day God is going to call you home. But until then, may we be faithful examples to our kids. Grandparents, be a Lois. Be a Lois. If all you're known for is a great pantry and a good fridge, letting the kids stay up late and watch movies till 10.30 or 11, and oh man, we love it. We want to go to Mimi's house. Listen, the greatest Mimi there is is the Mimi who allows the pantry to be raided, and the fridge to be a delight, and you to go, oh, why is that good? Well, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, let me tell you why the Lord is good. And then open up that big old Bible, that large print one, you know, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> it's about four times the size of this one right here. Open that bad boy up. Get it off the mantle. Sit him in your lap and say, hey, let me tell you about the Lord. And don't be merely known for being the grandmother that has all the fun. Don't miss moments to instruct your grandkids in areas that you missed it with your own kids. Everything we have are redemptive moments. Don't miss redemptive moments. It's not too late. If you still got a year with your son before he graduates, use it. If you have two, use it. If you have three, if you have seven, use them. Become intentional because that's what Eunice was. She is a good conquest. She made good use of her time. 
Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for today. We pray, God, that you would bless the work of your word. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for a Timothy who Paul wanted to accompany him and at some point took him and had him circumcised. But Lord, that was Timothy's decision to own his faith. And I love the fact that you did not give Timothy a spirit of fear, but you gave him a spirit of power and love and of self-control. And I pray that for our people here today, that maybe they fear moving forward. Maybe they fear what it would look like to confront some of these ideals in their family or in their marriage. God, would you give them the strength to press on? Would you remind them that your yoke is easy and your burden is light? Would you remind them that you are the God? Just as you said to Joshua, I'll never leave nor forsake you. God, would we be reminded of that from Hebrews, that you will never leave nor forsake us, that you indwell us, that you give us a future hope and a a future of glory. And Lord, we press on for those times. We run the good race until then, but God, help us, God, to be one in faith. God, help us to be reminded that you want to spur us on towards love and good deeds. Assure us of the faith. Help us, God, to persevere. In Jesus' name.